Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Uh, tonight, I'm pumped, seven o'clock, either a Facebook Live or from our website, kfirst.org. Either way, join us tonight at seven. And then just a reminder, uh, this coming Sunday, week from today, we're gonna do an online-only service. So the, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, um, it's always a challenge in terms of uh, just to get, gather together for that Sunday. There's so many family activities going on, things going on, uh, people catching up on sleep. Uh, so join us online, join us from your home, join us from your jammies. And uh, we're gonna celebrate uh, Jesus and we're gonna have, I think Kyle's preaching on Sunday. It's gonna be fantabulous. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter one as we close out our series that we've simply called Blizzard. And uh, just been very, very blown away at the response of individuals that have watched online or joined us in person at how this series has really ministered to their hearts and touched their lives. And uh, I'm really, really excited about just the fruit of what this series is going to bring. Um, I've been studying for the past couple of months, I should say preparing for our January vision series, but I have just been honestly feeling a, in, the, in the Pentecostal world, we call it a check in our spirit. Uh, in regards to vision for next year, because uh, it's a challenge during this pandemic, finding vision, developing vision. And so I've spent the past week talking with pastors on the phone and uh, honestly getting some counsel, some mentoring and just praying through. And there's something that you're gonna see as a common denominator across pastors across the state is we are all feeling challenged with vision and most of us are making decisions to change up our January into something different. So two weeks from today, we're gonna to start a new series on hope. And we're gonna take the month of January to honestly speak prophetically hope into our, into our congregations, into our cities, into our regions. I told my wife this two weeks ago, we were on a walk and I just said, I just sent something in my heart that I have no explanation for. I have no rational reason for it. I feel so much hope for 2021. And she goes, where is that coming from? I said, it's gotta be the Lord because there's no other reason to have hope, it seems. But I think that in and of itself is, is reason enough for us to pour into hope and to speak hope in January of 2021. So I am extremely stoked about what God is developing, what God is preparing for us in 2021. This past week, one of the people I talked to, I talked to my best friend on, on almost a weekly basis. And normally our conversations consist of, you'll never guess what I accidentally said from the pulpit or what I accidentally did out in public because we have weird lives for which things happen to us. And we've said for years that, that bad things don't happen to preachers, only sermon illustrations. So that's just our lives have poured from that. And for some reason, the term staying, standing ovation came up in our conversation. And that, that sent me on a Google channel. What's a Google chase? It's my term for just Google searching like crazy, that term. And I started just looking up standing ovations and I found out the Guinness Book of World Records, the longest standing ovation, this may shock you, is not for Dave Berenger whatsoever in the least bit. In fact, it was for a poet. A two hour long standing ovation Two hours, you're like, for a poem? Well, you have to understand that, that, that according to what he was doing that day, he was doing a study on the applause. And so therefore his two hour presentation entailed two hours of ovation and applause, nonstop. How many of you know that most of us would be getting hand therapy after two hours of applauding? I figured that's what would happen if the Lions ever won the Super Bowl, it would be something like that. 
that's just me. So I started doing my Google chase of applauses during the Emmys, applauses during the Oscars, applauses here, applauses there. And oddly enough, I mean, you know me, I'm just not into sports at all. Uh, so I had to look up longest ovation in sports history. What is the longest standing ovation in sports history? And honestly, I was ashamed to not know the answer immediately because when I found out the answer, I had to do with my favorite athlete of this particular sport. And this ovation took place on September the 6th, 1995, because on that day in a stadium, over 40,000 people stood to their feet, clapping, shouting. You're like, and probably with their cell phones. This was 1995. Nobody thought, let's bring my phone to the, ball, to the ballpark. No, people actually went to the ballpark and enjoyed the game. But on that day, 40,000 plus stood, and the standing ovation, get this, had nothing to do with a touchdown. It had nothing to do with a home run. It had nothing to do with a long putt on the 18th green to win the Masters. It had nothing to do with a goal scored into the net. It had nothing to do with that. No championship banner was raised. No trophy was raised on that day. And the question is, why did people stand and just cheer for 22 minutes straight for this individual? Honestly, it's rapid up in this, somebody showed up to work that day. Somebody showed up to work that day. That was the reason. A man by the name of Cal Ripken Jr., my favorite baseball player of all time. I patterned my game, even though I was the second baseman, I patterned my game after. I wore Cal Ripken's number eight because of him. And on that day, he broke a record that was set by the New York Link Yankees legend, Lou Gehrig, because what happened was on this day, September the 6th, 1995, he showed up for the, his 2,131st game in a row. All he did was show up to work every single day. Now you have to wrap your head around this. In baseball, there are 162 games every season. That's a lot of games. And for most players, most players do not play every game. Most players will take games off because of fatigue. Sometimes they get into a batting funk and so they take a game or two off to kind of reset themselves. Sometimes they get injured, they get banged up, they get bruised up during the game or from the game itself or something outside of the game. So they will take games off. But Cal Ripken, when everybody else took games off for fatigue, Cal Ripken did not. When people took days off because they got banged up a little bit, Cal Ripken did not. There are college players these days, these days who will skip games because they're saving themselves for another, another level. Cal Ripken decided that every single game, every time that something was available for him to interact and intersect with when it came to baseball, he showed up. And so for over 13 seasons, he missed nothing because of fatigue, nothing because of a challenge, nothing because of anything that stood in front of him. He had every opportunity to step back. He had every right by his age to step back, but he showed up for 2,131 straight games because that's who he was. The title of my message this morning is He Showed Up. He showed up. And I, today, I don't want to preach about Cal Ripken Jr., but what I want to do preach about is that which the, 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 our, our apostle John, the disciple that we know as John, he wrote about the Christmas story. And if there's anything that we can wrap up his story and his version of the Christmas story, it's this. Jesus showed up. When life was at its darkest, 
when this world was fatigued with sin, when our lives were injured by the results of sin, Jesus showed up. And so that's why today we look at the Gospel of John because the word that we get is the word incarnation. The word incarnation means something was made real. Something was brought into flesh. Something was revealed to us. And that's what John is trying to write about. And what I love about John is John writes from a particular perspective. Two weeks ago, we preached out of the Gospel of Matthew because the Christmas story is the, is the story that centers around Joseph leading toward Christ. And then last week we preached out of the book of Luke, which is the story of Mary that points toward Christ. And then when we look at the Gospel of John, what is so peculiar about the Gospel of John is because John had a perspective that Matthew and Luke did not have. Now, I believe that the scriptures, the holy scriptures that God breathed, God breathed upon individuals, they pinned out the scriptures. There's such an amazing story to how the scriptures were written. But John had a peculiar viewpoint that the other two did not have. If you ever read the Gospel of John, you're reading John chapter 19, that when Jesus was on the cross, you understand when Jesus went to the cross, all of his disciples abandoned him, one betrayed him, so 12 of his closest companions were nowhere to be found. But yet when he was hanging upon the cross, one did return to him, and that was John. And John stood there at the foot of the cross and Mary, the mother of Jesus, stood there at the foot of the cross and Jesus, with some of his dying words, his dying breath, he speaks out and he says, John, this now is going to be your mother. Mother, this now is going to be your son. And what he was doing in that culture was doing what the oldest son would do and should do because the oldest son was responsible for taking care of his mother. And because Jesus was dying, he wanted to be responsible. And he did this very beautiful cultural thing. It says, John, this is going to be, you're going to be the oldest child now. And so here's going to be your mother. And mom, this is now going to be your oldest son. And church history tells us that from that point on, John took care of Mary. In fact, uh, church history, church tradition tells us that they moved to Ephesus and that's where the Ephesians church was born. And now when you think about where would John have gotten his information about the Christmas story, where do you think John got the information? Mary. You want to talk about getting firsthand knowledge of what happened in what we know as the birth of Christ? He got it straight from Mary. He got to hear about the shepherds. He got to hear about the wise men. He got to hear about, you know, like tradition, we talk about three wise men. He actually got to hear how many wise men actually showed up that day. He got to hear about the escape to, to Egypt. He got to hear about being, uh, this baby being born, not in a stable, but in a cave near the shepherd's fields. I've been there in Israel. It's a beautiful spot, but yet trying to wrap your head around Jesus being born in a cave next to a field and put into a trough, a feeding trough that was made of stone, carved out. It's a beautiful thing. And yet, when you think about all the details that he could have talked about, when it comes to the Christmas story, I mean, he got first-hand details from Mary herself. How does John pen out the birth of Jesus? It says here in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him not, was not anything made that was made. 
and in him was life, and the life was the light of the men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor from the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. Here's his description of the Christmas story. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. All of, the, of all the details John could have given of the Christmas story, firsthand from Mary, firsthand knowledge, firsthand details. And John wraps it up in verse 14, and he says this, the word Jesus God became flesh. Jesus showed up. When we were at our darkest point, God showed up. Jesus showed up. It was God become man, fully God, fully man. He came to live with us. And this theology of, of, of fully God, fully man, Jesus being God, is something that has been debated for years, but it is perhaps the most important detail that we cannot look past in the Christmas story. This was John's emph emphasis in his gospel. Is you got to know Jesus because Jesus is the Lord. And in fact, in the, in the year, I think it was 325 AD, there's something called the Council of Nicaea. And what is so cool is this, is we get the Nicene Creed from the Council of Nicaea that we actually sung today. Um, I had no intention of telling Pastor Abby what we were preaching or teaching, and that song is included. So it's, that's so cool that that was included. But in the Council of Nicene, this was one of the most hotly debated topics there as people were saying, is Jesus really God? In fact, it got so heated that one bishop punched another bishop. Imagine having a church business meeting where the pastor walks over and punches another pastor. Do you want to know the bishop's name? Because you actually know the name. Do you know who it was, the bishop? St. Nicholas. He wasn't asking who's naughty or nice. He was asking who's the heretic in the bunch. That Literally, in the formation of theology, St. Nicholas got punched somebody and actually got thrown in jail over it. <laughs> Pastor Dave's in jail, Kalamazoo Gazette, MLive. Why? He punched one of the other pastors because they got into an argument. That's literally what took place. See, the miracle of Christmas was not that Mary and Joseph found a cave for Mary to give birth. That wasn't the miracle. The miracle wasn't even that the angels showed up or that the wise men showed up. The miracle of Jesus was that God came to us. It was the incarnation. Jesus showed up. That is the miracle that we celebrate. And this is what John is trying to emphasize over and over. The Gospel of John is my favorite gospel of all the gospels. Some of you like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're wonderful, they're fine, but you're wrong. John is the best. The focus of John 
It's just that. Jesus is Lord, and you ought to know all about that. But I love what else John emphasizes about Jesus, and you can find that in verse 4. And so if, if you're taking notes, we're going to dive into Jesus being the light, and we're going to actually finish off the message tonight at 7 o'clock. But look at verse 4. This is what, what else John says. It says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. In verse 5, I'll read that to you. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. I love this verse because it really encapsulates what John is trying to get out. That God became flesh. God came to us, fully God, fully man, and he came to live amongst us and to be with us, to, to sup with us, to dine with us, to live with us, to house with us. And he came not when it was convenient for him, he came when we needed him most. And he not just came, but he came, became the light in the midst of a dark time. See, everybody came and they thought that immediately the Messiah was going to make things better because in people's mind, the Messiah was going to come as a political figure. He is going to come raise up an army and take over Rome and to crush Rome. And that's why so often as you're reading the, the story of Jesus, you read people saying, when are you going to restore the kingdom? When are you going to bring about your armies? When are we going to overthrow Rome? Because people were thinking that the way to solve life is through the politics and the governments of this world. But life will never be solved through the governments of this world. Life is solved through the kingdoms of our God. And the rulership and the reign of Jesus Christ and here, John is writing in this place of darkness because the question is, how dark was it for John in his time? You see, when Jesus, when Jesus was crucified and he rose and he ascended unto heaven, John and the apostles went out from that place to spread news of the kingdom of God. That's where we read in the book of Acts chapter one and two where Jesus ascended, the spirit of God came down upon the church and the church was birthed into this world. But between the birth of the church and the time that John is writing this gospel, between these two times, Nero was emperor and he began to burn Christians to create light in his garden. He began to decimate Jewish town after Jewish town. He surrounded Jerusalem and began to dug, dig trenches around them to divert, divert any water source. Why? Because he wanted to starve out the people of Jerusalem. Over a million Jews were slaughtered and others, hundreds, were taken into the Roman markets to be sold as slaves. And in fact, the same temple that Jesus would walk into was burned and destroyed in 70 AD. So when John is talking about that there is a light in him was life, and it was light, and he was a light to men. He wasn't just speaking parathetically. He was speaking into a reality that what he was facing was such a dark time. He was losing family. He was losing friends. He was losing culture. And he was trying to help convey that even though we see dark moments, there is a light that has come to all of us in our dark moments. And no matter what we face, that armies cannot take away the darkness. Injustice can't take away the darkness. Religiosity can't take away the darkness. Greed, jealousy, condemnation, family dysfunction, hurt and pain cannot overcome that which the light shines within our lives. You see, John, even though he was facing darkness, he was living in darkness, he was not going to be thrown by what is happening around him. Why? He was anchored in what had happened before him. 
He had seen Jesus. He had seen the resurrection. He had received the spirit of God. And so therefore he wasn't gonna be thrown by what had happening or what has been happening. He was anchored by who Jesus was and he knew what had taken place. He knew that the resurrection life was inside of him. And so therefore, no matter what he faced, he was anchored by what has happened in his life. He wasn't disturbed by the darkness, nor was he distracted by the darkness. He was fixated on the light. Because I've learned that it's hard to be disrupted by darkness when you're fixated on the light of who Jesus is. So I think it was a year ago or two years ago, we preached a series called True North. And when we talk about True North in this church, what we are talking about is not what is magnetic north. We talk about what is true north in our lives. Jesus is our true north. He is that magnetic pole, that faith pole that we get our lives centered on so that when we see things in turmoil, that we don't focus on the turmoil and that are so tough, man. I don't know what your emotional response is. My emotional response to turmoil is anger. And when I'm in the biggest turmoil, the biggest blizzard of my life, I look to my true north because it's hard to be disrupted by what is happening when we keep fixing our eyes upon the light. And so this moment of John chapter one, verse four, of John talking about the light, it's actually something he continues to talk about in the books of first John, second John, and third John. Something great to read, not during my sermon, but after the sermon. Great books to read. But what John is doing is he focuses on this word light and what he does is he keeps pulling on this thread. You know what I mean when I pull on a thread? How many of you growing up that whenever you had a thread on a sweater and you went to pull on that thread, your mom slapped your hand? Anybody else besides me that that happened to? Yeah, thank you over here, somebody truthful. Everybody else is lying to me. Um, We were all been there because when you pull on the thread, what happens? You realize what else is connected to that thread. And you got this monstrous hole that just rests in your sweater. So John is beginning to pull on a thread. Why? Because this thread is actually connected through time all the way back to the prophet Isaiah about seven to 800 years. And it begins to pull on this thread of light because this idea of God being light is nothing new to the church. It's nothing new to the world because it's something that Isaiah would have spoken about years ago. In fact, it says in Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, it says the people who walked in darkness have seen what? A great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Now we talked about the darkness, like when when John is talking about the light, it means something to him because the culture, the world he lived in, he's watching nothing but darkness crowd as he's watching his fellow towns, his fellow, fellow countrymen, he's watching people get slaughtered, people get killed, he's watching a darkness rise, knowing that what he speaks about Jesus is Jesus came to dispel the darkness. And he is pulling on this thread that has come all the way from the times of Isaiah, where Isaiah prophesied this amazing passage. In fact, if you ever run to read something at at Christmas time before you open up presents. It's something that we've done since the kids were little. This is my favorite passage to read from. The whole prophecy of Christ in Isaiah 9. And he begins to pull on this thread connected to Isaiah where Isaiah said, listen, there are people who are walking in darkness. They have seen a great light. Those who are dwelling in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Now, Isaiah wasn't talking about the time of John. Isaiah was talking about his own time because he and the people of Israel were dealing with darkness. There's something called the Assyrian crisis 
in this time where Isaiah wrote. The Assyrian crisis was something of such a magnitude that it's hard to really speak about it here and to give details because we've got some different generations in the house. We've got diff, diff, different, uh, so we've got children that are watching on live stream. So I won't go into details, but the Assyrian army was a world power that were marching to the city of Jerusalem. This was a brutal march and they were famous for not just killing their enemies, but displaying their enemies in numbers of grotesque ways throughout the region to strike fear into the heart of everybody who would stand against them and strike fear into the heart of anybody that they were marching toward. The idea was to strike fear so that nobody could ever withstand this assault. This was so bad and this culture was so brutal. It is why in the book of Jonah, why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because of that culture. He was scared to death to go there knowing what they did to other people. And so when we talk about Isaiah saying for people who are walking in darkness, he knew what he was talking about because what he was writing and when he was writing was a time of great darkness. And what Isaiah was saying is like, listen, we're living in great darkness. We're facing a great darkness. But guess what? Even though we're in darkness, there is a light that's going to come. There is a light that's going to present itself. There is a light that's going to come and it's going to be more than a physical candle. There's going to be something that will dispel the darkness once and for all. And it helped us understand this very simple concept. And it's this, light defeats darkness every time. And for Isaiah, there was great darkness around them. This Assyrian crisis was creating this sense of darkness. And Isaiah says, listen, don't be discouraged because a light is coming. John is saying, listen, I know what's going on around me, but guess what? A light has come. Ladies and gentlemen of Cave First, for those that are here and those online, let me encourage you that life may feel like a blizzard. You may not be able to see the sun. You may not be able to see what's around you because of confusion and frustration and hurt and pain and depression and, and anger and frustration. But let me remind you that as dark as the dark can be, it can never hide the light. Jesus has come. And the light can always and will always defeat the darkness. I have never heard of darkness consuming the light. But I have seen the light dispel the darkness in every single corner. The light has come. He showed up. And so, so John is writing this and he's helping us to understand this idea of Jesus' birth. And he says this in verse five, the light shines in the darkness, and I love this, and the darkness has not overcome it. Man, some of you here today, the enemy has convinced you that what you are doing and you following Jesus and you trying to be a good Christian and you trying to follow in faith, that you can't be enough, that it won't be enough, that you're this or you're that. And that's where you just gotta look the enemy in the eye. And I love telling him, listen, I am not this and that, but in him, I am this and that because I don't not live by my own life. I live by who I am in Jesus Christ. And therefore, I keep going. I keep flowing. I keep working. I keep walking. I keep stepping by faith because I don't care how much darkness he tries to bring. I just speak the light of Jesus into that place and immediately the shadows are chased away. The light always defeats the darkness every time. And so I love Isaiah because Isaiah in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, he, he gives the light different names and that's what I wanna rest in today. He gives different names, I love this. One of my first ever series here at K First, I think it was series number two for us in Christmas, I preached on all four of these. 
I love this. These four names that Isaiah gives us. So if we're navigating through a blizzard of life right now or a blizzard of the holidays right now, just the storms that we, sense the, that we seem to go through through different seasons of life, he gives four names to the light. And I just want to go through, through these things because today I believe in that one of these names are going to jump out to you. And today if you're going through a storm, you're going through a blizzard, today I'm going to challenge you. Lean into who he is. Lean into who the Lord is this morning. If you've taken notes, write down, just write these down in order. Number one, he is the wonderful counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. The fact that he guides us, he gives us a way forward, he gives us a path. So when you encounter a situation that you just don't know how to navigate, this Christmas, ask God for wisdom. He is a wonderful counselor. I don't know if anybody else in this place sees a counselor. I see a counselor. Why do I need a counselor? Because there's sometimes I can be so wrapped up in a situation that I need the outside voice, a Christ-centered voice that can see outside of me, that can speak into me into a way because there are times the blizzard is so big in my life that I don't know to look to the left or to the right or to in front of me or behind me. And I need a voice speaking to me in the midst of my dark place. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Number two, he's our mighty God. Colossians 1:17 says, "He is before all things and in him all things hold together." Get a hold of that word out of Colossians. In him all things hold together. I feel right now I need to speak into somebody's life that you are so weary, you're so broken, that you are so tired because you are so wiped out from having to hold everything together. I feel the Holy Spirit just kind of wants me to pause for a second because you are so weary. You're worn out for just trying to hold family together, trying to hold life together. And the blizzard and the chaos of our culture right now, you're so worn out. There is a name that Isaiah gives and the name is Mighty God. And he holds it all to, man, the song this morning that we led off with, that he holds it all together. If you need to listen to that song, you can go online after the sermon, after the sermon, <laughs> Maverick City Worship does this song. It's a brand new album. It's the first song. Over and over, he holds it all together. You don't have to be the one to hold it all together to have it all together. You don't have to have it all together to have it all together. You don't have to hold it all together to have it all together. You don't have to worry about that. Hold on to the light. Just hold on to the light. Hold on to the light and let God, the mighty God, hold it all together because sometimes his power will solve the problems that seem unsolvable. His power is the one that makes impossible possible. His power is what breaks addiction and heals sickness. And when we have run out, his power never wanes or fails. He is the mighty God. Number three, he is the everlasting father. He's the everlasting father. What I'm reminded about with the everlasting father, something we talked about a few weeks ago. He is the one that adopts us as sons and daughters. You may not feel like a son or daughter, but he looks at you as a son or daughter. I've had people say, I've had people literally tell me, don't ever call people a son or a daughter of God unless they've been given to Christ. But I'm here to say this, is that when the prodigal son was coming back to the dad, when he was coming back to his father, he didn't have to get restored to be called a son. He came running back and before the restra restoration ever happened, and the father said, look, my son was dead. He is my son. And now he's alive. 
And some of you here that you just don't feel like our son or daughter, maybe that's what's keeping you from coming back to the Lord. I'm here to tell you that you don't have to be close to the Lord. You don't even have to believe for me to honestly call your son and daughter of the Lord. But some of you need to start living like it and acting like it because that's who you are. And he is the father, an everlasting father that will adopt you and give you an identity that you need to live in. You don't have to live like a child that is ostracized. You can live in this adopted identity as a son or daughter. And what I love about having that identity is that God loves you without limits. I've, I used to work in youth ministry for 12 years of my life. If there's anything that I had to work with with teenagers for years in counseling was this, is the idea of a father that loves without limits because, for, because of what we're dealing with in the darkness of our culture is this, is we have an orphan spirit that lingers amongst our culture. A spirit where people just feel orphaned by their earthly parents. They feel orphaned by the world. People feel they have nobody. And yet there's something I wanna speak into you that you have an everlasting father. You may not have had a good father in your life. You may not have had any father in your life, but I'm here to speak to you that you do have a heavenly father that loves you unconditionally and he loves you without limits. He loves you without end. Some of you taking notes today, you need to write the words down that Jesus loves me without limits and he loves me without end. He's an everlasting father that won't abandon you. And when everybody else has, there is one that has never and will never leave you or forsake you. And the light has come into that place. Number four, Isaiah calls the light the prince of peace. He calls the light the prince of peace. Given the chaos, I mean, think about the chaos that Isaiah was talking about with the Assyrian conquering of the area. He called the Lord, the Prince of Peace. Think about John referring to this time in Isaiah's time and referring to his time in the midst of this darkness. The light has come, the Prince of Peace has come. Think about the chaos of the Christmas story for those in the house that have given birth. I don't know about you, but I don't think that I would wanna go into a time of chaos when a child was being born. I, it kind of feels like that at the moment, but our chaos when, when Cammy was born was nowhere near the chaos of Mary and Joseph. I mean, it was chaotic. It was three in the morning. Why children have to be born in the middle of the night? I do not know. All I know is Anne ran out of the room in labor. She grabbed the suitcase and ran out the door. And I grabbed my PlayStation and we ran out the door because I didn't want to get bored during labor. Uh, listen, future dads, don't do that. True story. True story. But think about the chaos of the Christmas story. The chaos, the darkness of Isaiah's story, the chaos, the darkness of John's story. And yet we get the title of the, of the Lord, of the light. He is the Prince of Peace. It helps us to understand that peace is not about the state of affairs we live in, but the state of being we rest in. Let me say that again. Peace is not about the state of affairs that we live in. Peace is about the state of being we rest in. Our peace cannot rest in the state of affairs. Because I promise you, go on social media, somebody will make you mad and think opposite of what you're thinking. Or somebody will find you a YouTube that, that supports their thing and then give that to you. Peace is never meant to be in the state of affairs. 
peace is a state of being that we rest in. He is our Prince of Peace. And we've got to rest into that. He has come to be the light. He's meant to be our wonderful counselor, our mighty God. He's meant to be our everlasting father and he's meant to come in and to usher absolute peace. And there's more I think I wanted to say on that and we'll maybe say that for another message. Because I wanna bring this time to a close and just speak light into someone's darkness because the light has come. We'll talk more about that tonight. The light has come and he wants to impact your darkness. I don't know what your favorite Christmas song is, but if it's not Oh Holy Night, you need to go back into the prayer closet and pray about it because that's the best Christmas song. And in fact, my wife and I, the other day, we were running errands and she was trying to figure out what my favorite version of Oh Holy Night is. I don't know how many versions of Oh Holy Night we listened to in the car that day. And she's trying to figure out what's the gold medal. And for me, don't judge me because it's the best one, the Celine Dion version of A Holy Night. It literally made me cry in the car. And if an artist messes up A Holy Night, I don't listen to them ever again. It's my gold standard. But I don't know if you know the background of A Holy Night. And I just wrap up with this. In 1847, a priest wanted to have a song, a poem, a piece of art written to honor the Christ child. And so he went to a local famous poet who happened to be atheist <laughs> and had him write, read, had, gave him the Christmas story and had him write a poem about the Christmas story. And then they wanted, and the artist wanted to put music to it. So he went to a friend and had that friend put music to the poem to make it into a song. And his friend was Jewish. So this guy didn't even believe in the Messiah being Jesus. And that's where O Holy Night was birthed in France. And the church fell in love with the song. And they began to sing the song. It began to spread like wildfire until the church hierarchy found out that an atheist and a Jew wrote, like a guy that doesn't believe in God and someone that doesn't believe in Jesus wrote the song, so they banned it in France. O Holy Night was banned in France for a while. But about 10 years later or so, so we're now in the 1860s. There's a guy by the name of John Sullivan Dwight who discovered the song and he wanted to introduce it to churches. Now, his motivation was this. He not only wanted to have a song that exemplified the coming of the Christ, but he was an abolitionist. And there were important lyrics that he wanted proclaimed in churches. And the lyrics come out of verse three when it says, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name, all oppression shall cease. And all of a sudden the song started spreading like wildfire through the Northern churches, especially as people were singing this at Christmas time, proclaiming the Christ child and proclaiming the atrocity that was slavery. And the fact that we are all made in the image of God, every life made in the image of God. But it wasn't still all that famous worldwide until the year 1906 when a man by the name of Reginald Fessenden decided to do something that had never been done before in history. You see, from that point before, any radio waves that went out from Radio, radio Shacks, not the company, any sounds that went out to surrounding ships, 
harbors, lighthouses were Morse code. But in 1906, he figured out a way to actually do a radio broadcast. And so people in radio sheds or radio shacks, people listening on headphones or ships that had the Morse code out on their speakers for everybody to hear. On that day, they heard something that they had never heard before. They heard a voice. And so on that day in 1906, Reginald began to read the Christmas story. And then he handed the mic over to his associate who got a little bit of mic fright, didn't know what to say. And so Reginald picked up his violin, stuck it underneath his neck and began to play and sing at the same time the first song ever proclaimed on a radio broadcast in all of history. What was that song? A Holy Night. And people around stood in silence as they heard a song that they maybe had never heard, a story they never heard in a way that they had never heard. And they heard my favorite lyrics saying, till he appeared and the soul found its worth. I'm here to say in the most dark moment of John's time, a light came. And when he appeared, he appeared not to say, this is how bad you people are. He appeared to say, this is how good I am. And this is how much you are worth. How much, how much worth you hold, Jesus showed up. And showed you, showed you your worth. He shows you you're loved, you're cared for, you're redeemable. And though you may feel darkness, the light conquers every time. Bow your heads with me. Jesus, I have tried to be faithful through this time in this series. And Lord, I pray that today that you would just speak into darkness and bring light. If you're here today, just with heads bowed, and even if you're watching at home, would you just close your eyes and would you just bow your head right where you are at? And maybe today you have been living in darkness. Maybe today you would just admit to yourself that you have not followed the light. I've had people tell me for years, I have had so much darkness in my life that just no way that Jesus would want me. But listen, Jesus didn't come for the light. He came to pierce the darkness. He didn't come for those that are holy. He came to make us holy. He didn't come for people that have no problems. He came for a broken people that we might be made whole. And if you're here today and you're not in a relationship with Jesus and you want to be in a relationship with Jesus, this is what I'm going to ask you to do in a very simple way. Would you just simply say this? Jesus, I invite your light into my darkness. Today, Jesus, I put my faith in you. Today, I accept the light. I accept your love in my life. And today, I put the trust, the faith in my life into your hands. I believe today. I trust in you. And maybe you're here today and you're just going through a massive blizzard of life right now. Maybe today you're just feeling the oppressive darkness. Man, that same oppressive darkness that maybe Isaiah would describe living in fear and wondering of what the future holds. Maybe like the time of John when it seems like everything around you, it feels like everything around you, it feels like everything's falling apart. Today, instead of being anchored in what is happening, would you anchor yourself in what has happened? What has happened? A light has come. 
would you just anchor yourself in the work of Jesus? Spirit of God, I ask that today in homes and hearts in this worship center, wherever people are listening to this message, in their cars, in their, in their, their kitchens, their bedrooms, Lord, maybe at work this week, I ask that right now, Lord, that you would just get, let your spirit, your presence, your love permeate those moments, those places. For the light has come and the light cannot be overcome by the darkness. Your light pierces the darkness. And Lord, I pray that today that hope would rise. Even when we can't find a physical reason, let hope rise. Let peace rise. Let encouragement rise. Let healing rise. Not because of anything that we are, but because of who you are. The light has come and the darkness cannot overcome it. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for hearts that have turned towards you, for lives getting fixated upon who you are. Help us to walk as children of the light. We pray this in Jesus' name.